An Earnest Warning About Lukewarmness by Charles Spurgeon Our text today is Revelation chapter 3 verses 15 to 21. We read, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There is no scripture that ever wears out. The epistle to the church of Laodicea is not an old letter which may be put into the wastebasket and be forgotten. Oh no! Upon its pages still glow the words, He who has an ear, let him hear. My dear listener, I ask you this, do you have an ear to hear? Our scripture today wasn't just meant to instruct the Laodiceans of the day, no, it has a wider aim. Indeed, the actual church of Laodicea has passed away, but other Laodiceas still exist. In fact, they have sadly multiplied in our day and it is the tendency of human nature however inflamed with the love of God to gradually chill into becoming lukewarm. Perhaps the letter to the Laodiceans is above all others the epistle for the present times. From what I read the church of Laodicea was once in a very fervent and healthy condition. In fact Paul mentions the church at Laodicea in his letter to the church at Colossae. He was therefore well acquainted with it. And as he does not utter a word of warning with regard to it, we may infer that the church was at that time in a sound state. But over time it degenerated. And cooling down from its former state, it becomes careless, lax and indifferent. Perhaps its best men were dead. Perhaps its wealth seduced into worldliness. Perhaps its freedom from persecution led it to complacency or neglect of prayer made it gradually backslide. But in any case, we know that it absolutely did decline till it was neither cold nor hot. Lest we should ever get into such a state and lest we should be in that state now, I pray that my discourse may come with power to the hearts of all who hear. May God grant that it may tend to the arousing of us all.
My first point in my message will be the state into which churches are very apt to fall. A church may fall into a condition far away from which it has a reputation. Yes, a church may have a reputation and be famous for zeal, and yet be lethargic. The address of our Lord begins, I know thy works. As much as to say, nobody else knows you. Men think better of you than you deserve. You do not know yourselves. You think your works to be excellent, but I know them to be very different. Of course, Jesus views with searching eyes all the works of his church. The public can only read reports and look from the outside in. But Jesus, he sees for himself. He knows what is done and how it is done and the motivation as to why it is done. He judges a church not merely by her external activities, but by her internal pieties. He searches the heart and he is not deceived by glitter or noise. He tests all things and values only that gold which will endure the fire. Our opinion of ourselves and Christ's opinion of us may be very different and it is a very sad thing when it is so. It will be a sad state indeed if we stand out as a church notable for earnestness and distinguished for success and yet are not really fervent in spirit or eager in soul winning. A lack of vital energy where there seems to be most strength put forth. A lack of real love for Jesus where apparently there is the greatest devotion towards him are all sad signs of fearful degeneracy. Churches are very apt to put the best goods into the window. Very apt to make a fair show in the flesh. And like men of the world, they try to make a fine figure upon a very slender estate. And how that is so, great reputations often have slender foundations. And lovers of truth lament that it should be so. Not only is it true of churches, but of every one of us as individuals that often our reputation is far in advance of what we deserve. Men often live on their former credit and trade upon their past and best characters, having still a name to live, though they are indeed dead. To be slandered is a dire affliction. But it is, upon the whole, a lesser evil than to think ourselves better than we are. In the one case, we have a promise to comfort us. In the second, we are in danger of self-conceit. Judge yourself how far this may apply to us. The condition described in our text is one of mournful indifferences and carelessness. They were not cold, but they were not hot. They were not infidels. Yet they were not earnest believers. They did not oppose the gospel, neither did they defend it. They were not working mischief, neither were they doing any great good. They were not distinguished for holiness, they were not irreligious, but they were not enthusiastic in piety, nor eminent for zeal. They were what the world calls moderates. They were of the broad church school. They were neither bigots nor Puritans. Yes, of course, good things were maintained among them, but they did not make too much of them. They had prayer meetings, but there were few present. 
for they liked quiet evenings at home and were and when more attended the meetings they were still very dull for they did their praying very deliberately and were afraid of being too excited they were content to have all things done decently and in order but vigor and zeal they considered to be vulgar such churches have schools bible classes meetings about meetings and all sorts of agencies but they might as well be without them for no energy is displayed and no good comes of them they could have ministers who may be the angels of the churches but if so they have had their wings closely clipped for they do not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel and they certainly are not flames of fire They may be shining lights of eloquence, but they certainly are not burning lights of grace, setting men's hearts on fire. In such communities, everything is done in a half-hearted, listless, dead and alive way, as if it didn't even matter whether it was done or not. It makes one's flesh creep to see how sluggishly they move. I long for a knife just to cut the red tape into pieces and for a whip to lay about their shoulders just to shake them up. Things are respectably done. Make sure people are not offended. The sceptical party is comfortable. The good people are not quite alienated. Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done. But as to doing them with all your might and soul and strength, a Laodicean church has no notion of what that means. They're not so cold as to abandon this work or to give up their meetings for prayer or to reject the gospel. If they did so, then they could be convinced of their error and brought to repentance. But on the other hand, They are neither hot for the truth, nor hot for conversions, nor hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. This is a horrible state. Because it is one which in a church holding on to a good reputation renders that reputation a lie. The world calls it a good church and yet there is unholy living among them, careless walking, weak teaching, a deficiency of real piety, prayer and zeal. Then the world itself is being deceived and that too in the worst way because When the world is led to generalise and judge falsely concerning Christianity because of that church, for it lays all of these faults upon the back of our faith and cries out, It's all a farce. The thing is mere pretense. Christians are all hypocrites. And unbelievably, in this state of the church, there is much self-glorification. For Laodicea said, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. The members say, everything is going well. What more do we want? All is all right with us. This, my friends, makes such a condition very hopeless because reproofs and rebukes 
fall without power. Where the party rebuke can reply, we do not deserve your gaze. Such warnings are not meant for us. If you stand up in the pulpit and talk to sleepy churches, as I pretty frequently do, and speak very plainly, they often have the honesty to say, there's a good deal of truth in what this man has just said. But if I speak to another church, which really is half asleep, but which thinks itself to be quite a model of diligence. Then the rebuke glides off like oil down a slab of marble. No result comes of it. Men are less likely to repent when they are in the middle passage between hot and cold. Then, if they were in the worst extremes of sin, if they were like Saul of Tarsus, enemies of God, they might be converted, but if they are neither opposed nor favouring, they will probably remain as they are until they die. When churches get into the condition of heart-hearted faith, tolerating the gospel, but also having a sweet tooth for error, they do far more mischief to their age than downright heretics. Better nothing than lukewarmness. Alas, this state of lukewarmness is so congenial with human nature that it is hard to fetch men from it. Cold makes us shiver. Great heat causes us pain. But a tepid lukewarm bath is comfort in itself. And of course it does. Such a temperature suits human nature. The world is always at peace with a lukewarm church. And such a church is always pleased with itself. But not too worldly, no. We have our limits. There are certain amusements which of course a Christian must give up. But we will go quite up to the line for why are we to be miserable? We are not to be so greedy as to be called measly, but we will give as little as we can to the cause. We will not be altogether absent from the house of God, but we will go as seldom as we can. We will not altogether forsake the poor people to whom we belong, but we will also go to the world's church. So as to get admission into a better society, to find fashionable friends. How much of this there is today? Compromise is the order of the day. Thousands try to hold with their hair and run with the hounds. They are for God and mammon, Christ and bow, truth and error, and so are neither hot nor cold. Do I speak somewhat strongly? Not so strongly as my master, for he says, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He is nauseated with such conduct. It sickens him and he will not endure it. In an earnest, honest, fervent heart, nausea is created when we fall in with men who dare not give up their profession and yet will not live up to it. Men who cannot altogether forsake the work of God, but yet do it in a sluggard manner. Trifling with that which ought to be done to the absolute best of our ability for such a good Lord and such a gracious Saviour. But many a church has fallen into a condition of indifference. And when it does so, it generally becomes the haunt of lazy, worldly professors. 
A refuge for people who want an easy religion, which enables them to enjoy the pleasures of sin and the honours of piety at the same time, where things are free and easy, where you are not expected to do much or give much or pray much or to be very religious, where the minister is not so precise and a more liberal people of broad views, free thinking and free acting, where there is full tolerance for sin and no demand for vital godliness. Such churches applaud the cleverness in a preacher, but as for his doctrine, that is of very little consequence, and his love to Christ and zeal for souls are very, very secondary. He's a clever fellow, he can speak well, and that will do. This style of things is all too common. Yet we are expected to hold our tongue for the people are very respectable. The Lord grant that we may be kept clear of such respectability. We have already said that the condition of indifference is attended with perfect self-complacency. The people who ought to be mourning and rejoicing and where they should be hanging out signals of distress, they are flaunting instead the banners of triumph. We are rich. We are adding to our numbers enlarging our membership and growing on all sides we have need of nothing what can our church possibly need that we have not already got in abundance yet their spiritual needs are terrible this is a sad state for a church to be in spiritually poor and yet proud yet A church crying out to God because it feels itself in a backsliding state. A church mourning its deficiency. A church pining and panting to do more for Christ. A church burning with zeal for God and therefore quite discontented with what it has been able to do. This is the church which God will bless. But that which writes itself down as a model for others is very probably grossly mistaken and in a very sad plight. The church, so rich in its own self-esteem, is utterly bankrupt in the sight of the Lord. It had no real joy in the Lord. It had mistaken its joy in itself for that. It had no real beauty of holiness upon it. It had mistaken its formal worship and fine building and harmonious sinning for that. It has no deep understanding of truth and no wealth of vital godliness. It had mistaken carnal wisdom and outward profession for those precious things. It was poor in secret prayer. That's the strength of any church. It was destitute of communion with Christ, which is the very lifeblood of religion, but it had the outward semblance of these blessings and it walked in its very own vain show. There were churches which are as poor as Lazarus as to true religion and yet are clothed in scarlet and design affair every day upon the mere form of godliness. Spiritual leanness exists side by side with vain glory. And as we read, This church of Laodicea had fallen into a condition which had chased away its Lord. The text tells us that Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. That is not the position which our Lord occupies in reference to a truly flourishing church. 
If we're walking right with him, he is in the midst of the church, dwelling there, revealing himself to his people. His presence makes our worship to be full of spirituality and life. He meets his servants at the table and there spreads them a feast upon his body and his blood. It is he who puts power and energy into our church action and causes the word to sound out from our midst. True saints abide in Jesus and he in them. Oh brethren, when the Lord is in a church, it is a happy church, a holy church, a mighty church and a triumphant church. But we may grieve him till he will say, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offence and seek my face. Oh, you that know my Lord and have power with him, entreat him not to go away from us. He can see much about us as a people which grieves his Holy Spirit, much about any one of us to provoke him to anger. Hold him, I pray, do not let him go. And the great danger is here. To be rejected of Christ, he puts it, I will spew thee out of my mouth. As in, it disgusts him. It's causing him nausea. And for this to be so, the church must first be in his mouth. Or else, how could it be spewed from it? What does this mean? Well, churches are in Christ's mouth in several ways ways they are used by him as his testimony to the world he speaks to the world through his christians lives and ministries he does as good as say oh sinners if you would see what my religion can do see here a godly people banded together in my fear and love walking in peace and holiness he speaks powerfully by them He makes the world see and know that there is true power in the gospel of the grace of God. But when the church becomes neither hot nor cold, he does not speak by her. She is no witness for him. And when God is with a church, the minister's words come out of Christ's mouth. Out of his mouth went a two-edged sword, says John in Revelation. And that two-edged sword is the gospel which we preach. When God is with a people, they speak with divine power to the world. But if we grow lukewarm, Christ says, Their teachers shall not profit, for I have not sent them, neither am I with them. Their word shall be as water spilt on the ground or as the whistling of the wind. This is a dreadful thing. Far better for me to die than to be spewed out of Christ's mouth. Secondly, Christ ceases to plead for such a church. Christ's special intercession is not for all men. For he says of his people, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me. I do not think Christ ever prays for the church of Rome. What would he pray for? but her total overthrow and other churches are nearing the same fate. They are not clear in his truth or honest in obedience to his word. They follow their own devices. They are lukewarm. But there are churches for which he is pleading. For he has said, for Zion's sake, will I not hold my peace? And for Jerusalem's sake, I will 
not rest until the righteousness thereof goes forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. Mighty are his pleadings for those he really loves and countless are the blessings with which he comes in consequence. It will be a terrible day when he casts the church out of that interceding mouth and leaves her unrepresented before the throne because she is not his. Do you not tremble at such a prospect? Will you not ask for grace to return to your first love? We know that the Lord Jesus will never leave off praying for his own elect, but for churches. As corporate bodies, he may cease to pray because they become anti-Christian or are mere human gatherings, but not elect assemblies, such as the church of God ought to be. Now, this is the danger of any church if it declines from its position and becomes lukewarm. Remember therefore from where thou art fallen and repent and do thy first works or else and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except you repent. What is the other danger? Such a church will be left to its fallen condition to become wretched. That is to say, it will become miserable, unhappy, divided, without the presence of God and so without delight in the ways of God, lifeless, spiritless, dreary, desolate and devoid of grace. And then the next word, miserable. Churches which once were a glory shall become a shame. Whereas men said, the Lord has done great things for them. They shall now say, see how low they have fallen. What a change has come over the place. What emptiness and wretchedness. What a blessing rested there for so many years. But what a contrast now. Pity will take the place of congratulation and scorn will follow upon admiration. Then it will be poor in membership, poor in effort, poor in prayer, poor in gifts and graces, poor in everything. Perhaps some rich people will be left to keep up the semblance of prosperity, but all will be an empty, vain, void, Christless, lifeless. Nonsense will fill the pulpit with chaff. The church will be a mass of worldliness, the congregation an assembly of warm bodies to keep vanity. And next, they will become blind. They will not see themselves as they are. They will have no eye upon the neighbourhood to do it good. No eye to the coming of Christ. No eye for his glory. They will see. They will say, we see. And yet be blind as bats. Ultimately, they will become naked. Their shame will be seen by all. They will be a proverb in everybody's mouth. Call that a church, says one. Is that a church of Jesus Christ, cries a second. Ye did Run well, says Paul to the Galatians. What did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Such a church had a grand opportunity, but it was not equal to the occasion. Its members were born for a great work, but inasmuch as they were unfaithful, God put them aside and used other means. He raised up in their midst a flaming testimony for the gospel and the light thereof was cast towards the oceans and gladdened the nations, but the people were not worthy of it or true to it. 
and therefore he took the candlestick out of its place and left them in darkness. May God prevent such a thing from coming upon us, but such is the danger to all churches if they degenerate into listless indifference. Thirdly, I have to speak of the remedies which the Lord employs. I do earnestly pray that what I say may come home to all listening, for it has come very much home to me and caused great searching of heart in my soul, and yet I do not think I am the least zealous among you listening. I urge you to judge yourselves that you be not judged. Do not ask me if I mean anything personal. I am personal in the most emphatic sense. I speak of you and to you in the plainest way. Some of you show plain symptoms of being lukewarm and God forbid that I should flatter you or be unfaithful to you. And I earnestly want each beloved brother and sister here to take home each affectionate rebuke. And you who come from other churches, whether in America or elsewhere, you want arousing quite as much as we do. Your churches are not better than ours. Some of them are not so good. And I speak to you also, for you need to be stirred up to nobler things. Note then, the first remedy. Jesus gives us a clear discovery as to the church's true state. He says, Thou art lukewarm. Thou art wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. I rejoice to see people willing to know the truth, but most men do not wish to know it. And this is an ill sign. When a man tells you that he has not looked at his ledger or day book or held a stock taking for the last year, you know whereabouts he is and you may well say to your manager, have you got an account with him? Be careful. Keep an eye on that. When a man dares not know the worst about his case, it is normally, certainly a bad one. But he that is right before God is thankful to be told what he is and where he is. Now some of you know the faults of other people. And in watching this church, you have observed weak points in many places, I'm sure. Have you wept over them? Have you prayed over them? If not, you have not watched as you should do for the good of your brethren and sisters and perhaps you have allowed evils to grow which ought to have been rooted up. You have been silent and when you should have kindly and earnestly spoken to the offenders or made your own example or warning to them. Do not judge your brother. Judge yourself. If you have any severity, use it on your own conduct and your own heart. We must pray the Lord to use this remedy and make us know just where we are. We shall never get right as long as we are confident that we are so already. Self-complacency is the death of repentance. Our Lord's next remedy is gracious counsel. It teaches us that one remedy for lukewarmness is to begin again just as we began at first. We were at a high temperature at our first conversion. What joy, what peace, what delight, what comfort, what enthusiasm we had when we first knew the Lord. 
And come let us begin again, each one of us, inasmuch as we may have thought that we were clothed, and yet when we were naked, let us hasten to him again, and at his own price, which is at no price, procure the robe which he has wrought of his own righteousness. If moreover we have come to be rather dim in the eye, and no longer look up to God and see his face, and have no bright vision of the glory to be revealed, and cannot look on sinners with weeping eyes as we once did. Let us go to Jesus for the eye self, just as we went when we were stone blind at first. And the Lord will open our eyes again. We shall behold him in clear vision, just like we did in days gone by the word from jesus is come near to me i pray you my brethren if you have wandered from me return if you have been cold to me i am not cold to you my heart is the same to you as ever come back to me confess your evil deeds receive my forgiveness and henceforth let your heart burn towards me for i love you and will supply all of your needs. That is good counsel. Let us take it. The best remedy for backsliding churches is more communion with Christ. Behold, said he, I stand at the door and knock. I have known this text preached upon to sinners numbers of times as though Christ is knocking on the door of their heart and they had to open it. That's not how the text was meant to be used. And if men will write a text the wrong way, it will not go. This text belongs to the church of God, not to the unconverted. It's addressed to the Laodicean church. There is Christ outside the church, driven there by her unkindness. But he has not gone far away. He loves his church too much to leave her altogether. He longs to come back and therefore he waits at the doorpost. He knows that the church will never be restored till he comes back and he desires to bless her. And so he stands waiting, knocking and knocking again and again. He does not merely knock once, but he stands knocking by earnest sermons, by impressions upon the conscience, by the quickenings of his Holy Spirit. And whilst he knocks, he speaks. He uses all means to awaken his church. Most graciously does he do this. For having threatened to spew her out of his mouth, he might have said, I will go. I'll never come back again to thee. That would have been natural and just. But how gracious he is when having expressed his disgust, he says, Disgusted as I am with your condition, I do not wish to leave you. I have taken my presence from you, but I love you. And therefore, I knock at your door and wish to be received into your heart. I will not force myself upon you. I want you voluntarily to open the door to me. Christ's presence in a church is always a very tender thing. He's never there against the will of the church. It cannot be. For he lives in his people's wills and hearts and works in them to will and to do of his own good pleasure. 
He does not break bolt and bar and come in as he often does into a sinner's heart, carrying the soul by storm because the man is dead in sin. And Christ must do it all or the sinner will perish. But he is here speaking to living men and women who ought also to be loving men and women. And he says, I wish to be among you. Open the door to me. We ought to open the door at once and say, come in. Good Lord, we grieve to think we should ever have put the outside the door at all. And when they see what promises he gives, he says he will come and sup with us. In the East, the supper was the best meal of the day. It was the same as our dinner. So that we may say that Christ will come and dine with us. He will give us a rich feast, for he himself is the daintiest and most plenteous of all feasts for perishing souls. He will come and sup with us. That is, we shall be the host and entertain him. But he then adds, he with me. That is, he will be the host and guests by turn. We will give him of our best, but poor fare is that, too poor for him, and yet he will partake of it. But then he shall be host, and we will be guests, and how we will feast on what he gives. Christ comes and brings the supper with him, and all we do is find the room. Now, brethren, sisters, what can I say to move you to take this medicine? I can only say, take it. Not only because of the good it will do you, but because of the sweetness of it. May we be willing to confess our need of so delicious a remedy. Need I press it on you? May I not rather urge each brother, as soon as he gets home today, to see whether he cannot enter into fellowship with Jesus. And may the Spirit of God help him. This is my closing word. There is something for us to do in this matter. We must examine ourselves. We must confess the fault if we have declined in grace. And then we must not talk about setting the church right. We must pray for grace, each one for himself. The text doesn't say if the church will open the door, but if any man hear my voice and open the door. You see, it must be done by individuals. The church will only get right by each individual member getting it right. Oh, that we might get back into an earnest zeal for our Lord's love and service, and we shall only do so by listening to his rebukes and then falling into his arms, clasping him once again and saying, My Lord and my God. That's what Hill Thomas did, it not? Putting his fingers into the print of the nails, putting his hand into the side, that cured him. Poor, unbelieving, staggering Thomas only had to do that and he became one of the strongest of believers and said my lord my god you will love your lord till your soul is as coals of juniper if you will daily commune with him come close to him and once getting close to him never go away from him anymore the lord bless you dear brethren the lord bless you in this thing.